From American Public Media and the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, this is an APM Reports documentary, Order 9066, Leaving Camp. From the White House today came the most drastic action yet taken against possible fifth column activity, sabotage and spying on the Pacific Coast. At the beginning of World War II, the federal government forced more than 110,000 Japanese Americans into prison camps. My father was in his 70s. We lost everything. But by 1943, the government was moving people out of the camps. It's a big moment when you start to pack for your trip outside. Going into camp was a piece of cake compared to coming out. Then, Japanese Americans began a long fight to get the government to make amends. The evacuation of Japanese people was a shameful act. Coming up, Order 9066, leaving camp. From APM Reports, first, this news. way ahead. Where does it lead? That's what this young couple is wondering. A short time ago, they were in a relocation center. Now they're in the Middle West, renewing their touch with the world they left a year earlier. It was 1943. The federal government had forced thousands of Japanese Americans into prison camps at the beginning of World War II. Now, the government was encouraging the prisoners who were deemed loyal to leave. Jim Carisu was a clerk in Madeira, California before evacuation. He spent a few months at the Jerome Center and has since been learning the candy-making trade in this big, nationally-known plant. The country was still at war, and Japanese-Americans were still barred from the West Coast. But this film urged them to seek a new life in other parts of the country. And here's a boy who always liked the printing trade, but never had an opportunity to work at it until after he lived for a while in a relocation center and came out to take a job as a helper pressman. The government hoped that the Japanese Americans who were released from camp would disperse across the country for good. Some prisoners were reluctant to settle in a new town. This film tried to give them a little push. It's a big moment when you start to pack for your trip outside. It's an even bigger moment when you walk through the gate for the last time and present your pass to the guard for the last time and take a look at the barbed wire fence for the last time. Your friends, as they board the bus to leave the center, are going to new experiences and to a better way of living. Some Japanese Americans leapt at the chance to leave camp. Others waited until they were allowed to move back to the West Coast. That wouldn't be until 1945. But wherever they went, resettling after camp was hard, sometimes even harder than being sent there. Everybody had it so tough. Everything was gone. Everything was gone. When we left the camp, I don't know who it was that told us not to speak Japanese in public. There were some shots fired into our home. I remember going to the golf ball games to watch him play, and the opponents would say, kill the Jap, kill the Jap. I don't know why. I just kept looking over my shoulder. When I went to work for one company, the supervisor there went around telling everybody, how would you like to work with a Jap boy? From American Public Media and the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, this is Order 9066, Leaving Camp. This program is the final installment of our three-part series about the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. In this hour, the challenge of leaving camp and the campaign for redress in the decades that followed. Pat Suzuki narrates our story. She was 12 when she and her family were forced to leave their home in California for a camp in Colorado. Roughly 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry were imprisoned in camps at the start of the war. And almost from the beginning, some were allowed to leave. College-age students were sent to schools outside the exclusion zones. Farm laborers were recruited to harvest crops. In 1943, even more prisoners were allowed out. These were people the government decided it could trust based on a loyalty questionnaire. Roy Ebihara's family was the first one to leave Topaz, an incarceration camp in Utah. It was June 1943. 
The war was raging. It was at its peak almost, you know. When Japanese-American families moved out of incarceration camps, it was common for one or two of the members to leave ahead of the rest. Once they were established, they'd send for the others. And that's what Roy's family did. His older sister and brother left first, along with their father. Their destination? Cleveland, Ohio. They skipped a meal a day so that they can provide for us financially. Roy was 10 years old when he and the rest of the Ebihara family left Topaz for Cleveland. Roy's family knew it could be dangerous to look like the enemy America was still fighting abroad, so they were cautious. Well, we were Chinese. What Roy means is that his family passed as Chinese the first year they lived in Cleveland. Until more and more and more Japanese families came out of camps, and then we no longer have to do that. You know, in numbers, there's strength, you know, that's the way it was. Roy says the people in Cleveland were actually pretty welcoming. He'd never heard of any hate crimes. I, I think we also knew that we had a job to do, and we, and our parents even had supper table would say, you've got to do your utmost to prove that you're a worthy American, you're a better American than your counterparts out there, you know, so that was what we had to do. Many Japanese Americans got a rougher welcome when they got out. Yoshimi Matsuura was eager to leave camp. He was 24 years old and incarcerated at Gila River in Arizona. He was also newly married. In 1943, recruiters for the National Youth Administration came to the Gila River camp. The NYA was a Depression-era program that operated across the country. It trained men and placed them in jobs. The recruiters offered to send Yoshimi to Minnesota. So I signed up. I went back and told my wife that I signed up to go to NYA Training Center in Shakopee, Minnesota. And she said, where's that? I said, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) When Yoshimi got to the training center near Minneapolis, he wasn't the only Japanese-American. He met scores of them who had been recruited from other camps. They were Nisei the Japanese term for the first generation born in the U.S. Plenty of Caucasian recruits were there as well. On the first day, a Monday, everyone registered for training. And Monday noon, they called us all, all the Niseis in, and told us outright that as of noon today, your enrollment here is terminated, period. That's it. We couldn't believe it. We were recruited, and we just got there, and... um, Now they're saying we're terminated. Yoshimi never found out why he and the other Nisei were suddenly kicked out of the program. He just knew he was stranded. Where do we go? We're in a strange place. Uh, What do we do? Yoshimi hopped a bus to Minneapolis and found a room in a boarding house. After some footwork, he was able to get a job as a janitor. Later, he worked in a factory. At that point, Yoshimi was earning enough money to rent his own apartment and send for his wife, but that, too, was a challenge. A lady who owned the place where I was room and boarding, she says, well, around the corner here is a duplex, upper floor. Go over there and check it out. So I went over there, and this lady looked at me, a big blonde lady, and she just told me, I'm not renting to a Jap. She spit in my face. So I walked away and uh, went back to my uh, my room. As I walked into the house, uh, Mrs. Nagel was a lady. She says, well, how did it go? And I said, I didn't get it. I didn't want to tell her because I know her. She would go with her and raise holy heck. I didn't tell anybody what happened. I didn't even tell my family. Even my wife didn't tell her until years later. Uh, Humiliation, it just, uh, it was terrible. A 
Stories like this got back to the Japanese-Americans who were still in the camps. It contributed to the prisoners' sense that life outside camp could be dangerous. Peggy Nishimura Bain was incarcerated at Minidoka in Idaho. Peggy was divorced, but her teenage daughter was with her. Some of Peggy's siblings had already left camp and settled in Chicago. They pleaded with her to join them. Peggy didn't want to go. I was afraid for one thing. You know, you don't have any money and you don't have no experience. You're working in a strange city. In the first place, I didn't like cities. Peggy's daughter, Pat, begged to move to Chicago. Peggy eventually gave in. Well, Pat was all excited and got on the train and... And the young people were singing the Chattanooga choo-choo and all that, and they were just having a grand time. Peggy was not, and things were no better when they arrived in Chicago. One of her sisters met Peggy and Pat at the train station, but she had no room for them in her apartment. Peggy went to the local branch of the War Relocation Authority for assistance. The agency had offices across the country to help Japanese-Americans resettle when they left camp. Peggy found the help was limited. Well, they gave me addresses, go here and go there, and my daughter and I walked and walked and walked, and we walked all day long. And everywhere we went, there, there would be a for-rent sign. When we get there, they'd say, oh, it's rented already. We never could get any satisfaction and finally, we found one place. The lady took us up to the second floor, and we were so happy because we thought, oh, well, at last we got a place to stay. But then she turned around and she says, oh, and her face just turned as red as a beet, and she says, I just remembered I rented the place. And we thought, well, uh, that's a fine big lie. By the end of 1944, nearly half of the Japanese-American prisoners had left the camps. More than 60,000 remained behind barbed wire. At that time, the Supreme Court was preparing to issue a decision that could allow many of them to go free. The ruling would say that the government could not continue to detain citizens during wartime unless it could prove that they were disloyal. The War Department had already told President Roosevelt there was no longer a military justification for the camps. But legal scholar Peter Irons said that FDR didn't want to end the incarceration before elections that fall. Even though the war was uh, effectively over in the sense that there was no possible chance of a Japanese attack on the West Coast and therefore no danger from any of the Japanese Americans, they would put off ending the camps and closing them until after the presidential and congressional elections in November of 1944. We don't want anybody to charge us with being soft on Japs. If we let them out before the election, our opponents may say, the war is not over officially, these people might pose a danger, and you let them out. The White House was tipped off that the Supreme Court ruling would be announced on December 18, 1944. So the day before, the government lifted the order excluding people of Japanese ancestry from the West Coast. At the start of 1945, the so-called loyal Japanese Americans were allowed to return home. And as those people were released from camp, they were pretty much on their own. You know, the government was offering only minimal assistance to Japanese Americans as they left. Eric Muller is a historian and legal scholar. He says the main support the government gave the people leaving camp was $25 and a one-way ticket. They could take a bus or a train to the destination of their choice. So it wasn't much. They were pretty much put out of the camps and told, go make a life. I remember very vividly the three of us sitting on the train, carrying my mother's ashes. This is Chizuku Norton. She left the Tule Lake incarceration camp in July 1945. Her mother had died in camp and had been cremated. Chizuku took a train home to Seattle with her sister and father. And what we discussed was not where we would live and what we would do, but what we were going to eat. 
Chisco and her family had no idea how they would rebuild their lives after three years of imprisonment, but they had something more immediate on their minds. This is going to be their first meal as free people. They wanted to savor it. And we were hoping that it would be breakfast so we could have, uh, you know, waffles and ham and eggs and that kind of thing. Even for the families who got to return to their homes, it wasn't clear what would be waiting for them. When they were sent to the camps, many people of Japanese ancestry had to sell their farms, businesses, and belongings for pennies on the dollar. A lot of folks made arrangements to store what they could in the closet of an apartment, in a church basement, or in someone's storage shed. Others entrusted the care of their land or home to neighbors. Some Japanese Americans came home to find what they'd left behind was still there, but many others came home to a shock. Their belongings were gone, their property destroyed, or the apartment they thought they owned had been sold. Going into camp was a piece of cake compared to coming out. Toshi Nagamori Ito grew up in Los Angeles. She was 18 when she and her parents were incarcerated at Heart Mountain in Wyoming. Coming out was so stressful, especially for the Issei. Issei is the Japanese term for first-generation immigrants, the people who came to the United States from Japan. Before the war, federal law barred them from becoming U.S. citizens. Still, many Issei had managed to build prosperous farms and small businesses, but most of them lost all of that when they were ejected from the West Coast. They had no money. No job, no place to go. Theoretically, Toshi's parents did have a place to go and a way to make a living. Before incarceration, Toshi's father sold life insurance from an office in Little Tokyo. Her mother and father also owned a home, which they rented to one of his co-workers while they were imprisoned. They stored their car with a friend, but there were problems as soon as they got back to L.A., the family that rented our home wouldn't move out. And so my parents went to the sheriff and had them evicted. And in the meantime, they, they got out, but they vandalized some of our furniture before they left. The renters, who were white, didn't stop there. They had nails strewn across our driveway, and they had a big sign, no Japs. Other white people sent the same message. The grocery stores in our neighborhood knew we were Japanese, so they told my mother, we don't sell to Japs. So my mother had to take a bus and a streetcar and go to Grand Central Market in Los Angeles, near Chinatown, to hopefully pass for a Chinese woman to buy her groceries. And she would go down there once a week with two great big shopping bags and bring back the food for the week. The Itos were hardly alone in the racism they faced when they got back to the West Coast. Brian Nia is the content director of Densho. That's the organization that collected most of the oral histories used in this program. He says many Japanese Americans were terrorized by whites, especially in rural areas. Returning families had their homes and farms vandalized, uh, fires were being set. There was this rash, what were what at the time were called night riders, where people were driving by and shooting at the houses uh, uh, at night. Fortunately, somewhat miraculously, no one was uh, killed in these incidents. Beyond facing racial hostility, returning Japanese Americans were often homeless. Many had been renters when they were forced into camp. There was a severe housing shortage when they returned. Shelters were established up and down the West Coast where families could stay temporarily. There are stories of people living in chicken coops at judo schools and old farm sheds. Returning Japanese Americans often had to be creative to find housing. That was the case for Bacon Sakatani. He was 14 years old when his family left Heart Mountain. We had no place to stay, and so my father got an army squad tent 
which is, I don't know, a very small, 12 feet by 12 feet or something like that. He put it up in the backyard of our former uh, landlord, right across the street from where we used to live. Decades after leaving Heart Mountain, Bacon Sakatani gets choked up as he recalls his family's early months of survival. After camp was the worst part of my experience. For those still living in the camps, the prospect of leaving became more and more daunting. One of the really sort of surprising and, at the surface level, confusing things about the year 1945 is that the Japanese Americans that remained in the camps at that point, many of them didn't want to leave. According to Eric Muller, it's not that the Japanese Americans enjoyed being incarcerated, but the outside world seemed threatening. Anti-Japanese propaganda was particularly virulent during the war. In this atmosphere, camp offered a measure of security. You know, they had a roof over their head and they were getting meals. And that was not something that they were had any assurance of on the outside. And so, paradoxically, the War Relocation Authority really had to sort of put the screws to the community to get them to leave. They had to start shutting operations down. They had to start shutting down mess halls. They had to start eliminating employment. As far as I can remember, we were the last family to leave Topaz. It was like a ghost town. This is Ted Nagata. Topaz was in Utah and closed in October 1945. Ted was 10 years old when he and his family took a train to Salt Lake City. And I can distinctly remember stepping over the tracks and then sitting on these long benches inside the depot. And I kind of asked my dad, uh, where are we going? And he had no idea. All Ted's father had was $25 from the government. That was meant to support Ted, his parents, and his older sister. Eventually, we ended up in a tenement room. I mean, it was only 10 feet by 10 feet. It had a gas stove because I remember my dad would cook uh, chicken noodle soup in there. And we had a lady that would come in every week and check on us. And later, uh, I was find that she was a social worker, and we were a welfare family. Ted's mother had a breakdown in camp, so Ted's father was essentially raising Ted and Carol on his own. As he worked to resettle the family, he placed Ted and Carol in a Catholic orphanage. The children lived there for about a year until his father was able to find a job and afford a home. Ted's mother was a U.S. citizen. He says she never recovered from what the government did to the Japanese Americans. My mother had a very hard time in Topaz and uh, the stress of incarceration and being called the enemy and why was the government doing to this? She was a college person so she knew her rights and uh, it just affected her to the point where she couldn't carry on. So. My mother was a, a real casualty of Topaz, and I'm sure there were many others, too. Ted was right. There were many other casualties of Japanese-American incarceration. This was especially true for the Issei generation, who were still barred from citizenship. Frank Yamasaki's father was one of them. My father was in his 70s. We lost everything, and now we have to start all over again. Frank's father went by the nickname Yama. He returned to his factory job when he got back home. Before the war, Yama had worked for years as a foreman there. He even trained the boss's son. And I remember one day when he came home, his face was just like a, a sheet, white as a sheet. The boss told Yama that things had changed at the factory since wartime. And I guess the boss says, uh, Yama, you stay home, you know. In other words, Yama was fired. He found a job washing dishes in a restaurant, but Yama was never the same. He built a business for the company, you might say, and so when he was told to stay home, you know, it just it really killed him. He died. In Los Angeles, Toshi Ito's father was also shut out of his old job. She says the company where he sold life insurance refused to take him back. They wouldn't hire him to do anything. He offered to uh, 
do some bookkeeping for them because he was so good at figures, but they said no. Toshi's father became more and more agitated as he failed to find work. In May of 1945, Toshi got married and moved with her husband to Minneapolis. Nine days later, she got a telegram. Her father was very sick. Toshi needed to come home. She was met at the train station in Los Angeles by a close family friend. And she said to me, I have a very sad message to give you. And she told me that my father had taken his life. And she said my mother would be in the car. So it was a very sad homecoming. Toshi says her father couldn't find a job, but he was too proud to go on welfare. Being a life insurance agent, he knew that the, the insurance company would pay my mother because he had even paid the premiums when he was in camp. I know he sacrificed his life for my mother. For most Japanese Americans incarcerated during World War II, recovering from the experience would be a long, slow process. After camp, many didn't talk about it. They chose to put it behind them. But years later, a movement started to build. Japanese Americans began to demand that the United States government apologize for the incarceration and pay reparations. You're listening to Order 9066, a documentary series from APM Reports and the National Museum of American History. This is part three, Leaving Camp. We'll take a short break. When we return, Japanese Americans fight for redress. You can hear this entire series at our website, apmreports.org. We also have links to in-depth resources and to the Smithsonian's online exhibition, Writing a Wrong. More in a moment. This is APM, American Public Media. After World War II ended, many Japanese Americans were reluctant to talk about the years they spent incarcerated. But in the 1970s, a movement began to grow to demand compensation from the federal government and an apology for the suffering of former prisoners. Pat Suzuki continues our story. The government actually offered reparations in 1948, but it wasn't much. Congress passed a law that would offer limited compensation for the financial losses suffered by Japanese Americans. But the terms of the law were narrow. Many families actually paid more in legal fees than they got in compensation. But in the years after the war, there wasn't much of an appetite among the Japanese Americans to demand more. People concentrated on rebuilding their lives. So what happens is... Japanese Americans start getting celebrated as a model minority in the late 60s and early 70s. Historian Alice Yang has written extensively about the incarceration and its aftermath. The people advocating this argument state that Japanese Americans suffered. They were victims of racism, but look at how they've recovered. They have not joined militant radical protesters demonstrating in the streets against the government or against the military. They've been loyal, they've been patriotic, and as a result, they've been economically successful. Yang says on college campuses, Japanese-American students were joining the civil rights and anti-war movements. They were signing up for classes in a new area of academic research, Asian-American studies. And in some cases, some of these people, right, who heard their parents talk about camps didn't realize that they were barbed wire compounds until they read about it in college. They then start criticizing their parents, right? Why is it that you have not ever talked about this injustice? Why did you just go along with the government and go into these camps? And so they begin calling for Japanese Americans to talk about the history of the camps themselves. At the time, Kathy Masaoka had graduated from college and was a community organizer in Los Angeles. One day, she heard a man give a talk about the camps. 
He was a Nisei, and he'd been incarcerated. I came home and I told my mother, and she said, oh, what is he talking about? You know, she was very, very uh, upset that he would be talking about something like that. Masaoka says that her mother's family was very tough and stoical. Maybe a lot of other Japanese-American families might be like that, but her family was very much like that. So they didn't want to bring up anything negative from the past. Don't whine about things. Don't cry about it. Move on. And don't make a fuss about the prison camps. Again, historian Alice Yang. Some people fear that if you raise this, you're going to incite a backlash. That anti-Japanese racism that victimized us during the war could rear its ugly head, right? And all the progress that we've made in terms of changing the image that people have of us, all of that goodwill will be endangered if you ask for redress. There were divisions in the Japanese-American community over the idea. I was among those who opposed the redress movement. Bill Hosakawa had been the editor of the camp newspaper at Heart Mountain. He went on to a notable career as an author and a newspaper editor in Colorado. And uh, I felt that um, it cheapened our sacrifice to put out our hands and say, give us some money for what we went through. Cheapened the sacrifice, cheapened the the, uh, ordeal that we went through. I changed my mind when uh, they came up with the idea of the uh, Congressional Commission. Japanese-American activists called for a Congressional Commission to investigate the incarceration and the damage it did. Tens of thousands of them were sent to concentration camps, in the words of a commentator, on a record which wouldn't support a conviction for stealing a dog. He wasn't speaking about Stalin's Russia or Hitler's Germany, but about the United States in the 20th century. Now, some 40 years after the fact, a federal commission is investigating that dark chapter in the nation's past to seek appropriate remedies. It was called the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians. The commission held 20 days of public hearings in 10 cities in 1981. Many Japanese-Americans who testified had never told their stories before, not even to their children. We felt that somehow we were party to this act of defilement, that we had somehow helped to bring it on. Activist Harry Kawahara testified at a commission hearing in Los Angeles. We innocent victims felt guilt and shame about it all. And if you know anything about Japanese culture, you will know that guilt and shame has strong influences upon us. One by one, people told their stories. My dad was a successful businessman before the Depression. He farmed during the Depression. We were coming out of the Depression, and then he lost it all. He was at an age, as many were, which was too late to start over again. And I know that he was very distressed for him after the war to go back and have to work as a dishwasher and as a janitor was very degrading, very demeaning. The evacuation of the Japanese people from the West Coast was a shameful act on the part of the United States of America. How a democratic country could have incarcerated their own citizens under the guise of a military necessity is highly questionable. It was unconstitutional and total racial discrimination. More than 500 people testified about being incarcerated. Some older people spoke in Japanese and had an interpreter. One of the main groups recruiting witnesses was the National Coalition for Redress Reparations. Kathy Masaoka was an organizer for the group. She says the coalition was especially committed to making sure that a diversity of Japanese-American voices be heard, not just the leadership. The funny thing is, of course, people were hesitant to speak, as they had been hesitant to speak all these years. It took a lot of work to get people to the point where they did testify at the commission hearings. I was living in Los Angeles when the war broke out. When we were told that we had to leave for camp, we had things and they were destroyed. Everything was destroyed or lost during the evacuation. I believe that the scars of evacuation that we bear are deep and very painful. Unless this great country of ours can acknowledge that grave injustices done to so many of us and make some form of reparation, 
there cannot be a healing of the invisible wounds that we bear so painfully. Thank you. Thank you very much. In the late 1970s, Aiko Herzig Yoshinaga moved to Washington, D.C. She was retired and had time on her hands, so Aiko decided to poke around in the National Archives to see if there were any records documenting her family's time in the camps. That set her on a fateful journey. I was quite surprised at the amount of information that they had about me. But then when I think back, yes, when we went into camp, we filled out all kinds of forms. And so why shouldn't they have this? But I was surprised they kept it, you know, little old inconsequential me, but they kept everybody's papers, school records, medical records, letters that went in and out of camp. They kept everything. In this interview from the 1990s, Ico said one batch of records led to another. After months of research, Aiko became something of an authority on documents related to the incarceration. Meanwhile, one of the Congressional Commission's jobs was to examine that history and answer a key question. Was the administration of President Franklin D. Roosevelt justified in removing all Japanese Americans from the West Coast? Aiko applied to be a researcher for the commission. She got the job. I was able to contribute about uh, six to 8,000 documents that I had by that time collected. One critical piece of evidence was a report given to the War Department back in 1943 about the removal of Japanese Americans from the West Coast. General John DeWitt was in charge of it. The report was long, a whole book, and it stirred up controversy within the Justice Department. DeWitt was head of the Western Defense Command. He argued forcefully for the exclusion of Japanese Americans from the West Coast. In a recent interview, Aiko Yoshinaga says that the DeWitt report claimed that untold numbers of Japanese Americans were prepared to help Japan invade the U.S. from the Pacific. That the Japanese were engaged in ship-to-shore communications and other ways of uh, contacting the enemy. Uh, DeWitt, uh, in the report, blamed that the people who were living here on the coast were responsible. But other documents she found contradicted DeWitt's claims. All the other correspondence that we found disproved that. FBI said, haven't found anything. The Federal Communications Commission said, there's no such proof of this, that, or the other. The Japanese were not responsible for any of it. General DeWitt's report included overtly racist characterizations of Japanese Americans. In an earlier interview, Aiko said that when Secretary of War John J. McCloy saw the report, he hit the roof. He says there are several things in here that show what happened to the Japanese Americans was based on racism, mm -hmm. bigotry. And we cannot have an official document with an approval of War Department <laughs> stamp on it for public consumption that's full of this kind of nonsense. The War Department ordered all 10 copies of the report to be destroyed, but only nine were accounted for. One went missing. Then a revised report was published. Decades later, Aiko was sitting in an office at the National Archives one day, thumbing through a book when she had a surprise. So I recognized this as the 10th copy that was missing. And I told the archivist, I said, do you know what you have here? And he didn't know. The DeWitt report was powerful evidence that the removal of Japanese Americans was motivated by bigotry. In 1983, the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians cited the document in its final report. The commission said that the incarceration of Japanese Americans was not caused by military necessity. It was caused by race prejudice, war hysteria, and a failure of political leadership. And here's what it recommended, that the president issue an apology, that a foundation be established to educate the public about this history, 
and that a payment of $20,000 should go to each surviving prisoner. On this 200th birthday of the Constitution, the House today passed a measure to apologize for what House Speaker Jim Wright called perhaps the most egregious violation of our Constitution in the 20th century, end quote. The bill, which they call an apology, authorizes $1.2 billion in payments to Japanese Americans who were rounded up and sent to internment camps during World War II. The Senate is expected to approve a similar measure next week. The White House has indicated that President Reagan may veto it. President Ronald Reagan ended up signing what became known as the Civil Liberties Act of 1988. For many, the real legacy of redress is not the passage of redress legislation. It's the commitment to ensuring that people know about this history. And historian Alice Yang notes that the Japanese-American civic groups that pushed for redress are still around. They've spoken out in defense of other minorities that have come under attack. That includes American Muslims since 9-11 and in the era of Donald Trump. Civil rights are fragile. They require vigilance and activism. The research that Aiko Herzig Yoshinaga did at the National Archives played another important role in the story of Order 9066. While she was working her way through boxes of documents, she met a legal scholar named Peter Irons. He was using the same records to write a book about three legal cases that arose from the incarceration, cases that made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Aiko and Peter decided to collaborate. Here's the backstory. When FDR signed Order 9066 in 1942, only a few Japanese Americans challenged its constitutionality in court. Their fight would continue off and on for more than 40 years. One of the combatants was Fred Korematsu. He was 22 years old at the time of the Pearl Harbor attack. When his family reported to the assembly center, Fred didn't go. He was arrested a couple of months later. With a lawyer from the American Civil Liberties Union, Fred challenged the government's right to incarcerate him. He said he'd always been a patriotic American. In fact, even before Pearl Harbor, he wanted to serve his country. I had tried unsuccessfully to join first the National Guard and then the United States Coast Guard. My Caucasian friends were accepted, but I was turned down. Fred Korematsu felt betrayed by America. When the exclusion order was posted on telephone poles in 1942, I felt angry and hurt and confused about my future. I could not understand how the United States government could do this to American citizens without a hearing or a trial. Two other men also took the fight to court. In Portland, Oregon, a young lawyer named Minoru Yasui defied a military curfew imposed on Japanese Americans. In Seattle, a Quaker pacifist named Gordon Hirabayashi did the same. Both cases went to the Supreme Court. Both men lost their appeals and spent time in prison. Almost four decades later, Peter Irons was looking through boxes of Justice Department records. And when I opened up the first file and started looking through the manila folders in it on the Korematsu case, I was absolutely astounded. I mean, literally astounded. Irons found a memo. It was from Justice Department lawyer Edward Ennis to Solicitor General Charles Fahey. It was about the DeWitt report that Ico had found at the archives a report full of lies. Ennis's memo said there was no evidence of espionage or sabotage by Japanese Americans, so there was no military reason for their imprisonment. And Ennis was so concerned about this that he told Solicitor General Fahey, since these lies are being told about this racial minority, it's our obligation to tell the court that they're not true. Solicitor General Fahey simply ignored the warning and went before the Supreme Court 
and told them that he vouched for, every, as he put it, every word, every line, and every syllable in the Army's report, uh, which he knew for a fact was not true. In 1982, Irons recruited a team of lawyers to get the convictions of Korematsu, Yasui, and Hirabayashi vacated in court. The first hearing was on the Korematsu case. The San Francisco courtroom was packed with Japanese Americans. Many had been in the camps. And the government lawyer said, Your Honor, uh, the government will agree to vacate these convictions because these are 30-year-old misdemeanors and nobody really cares about them anymore. And there was a tremendous gasp of shock from the courtroom to say something that callous and that nobody cares about this anymore when these people have been carrying the burden of being presumed disloyal or even treasonous all the time since World War II. Then Fred Korematsu addressed the court. He said, Your Honor, I remember 40 years ago being in this courtroom in handcuffs and being told I was an enemy of my own country. He said it was unfair then, and unless my record is cleared, this could happen to Americans of any race or any nationality uh, at any time in the future. The judge agreed. She vacated the conviction and cleared Fred Korematsu's record. Later, the convictions against Gordon Hirabayashi and Minori Yasui were also tossed out. The Justice Department did not appeal the rulings. Irons actually hoped the government would appeal so that the cases could go to the U.S. Supreme Court. He didn't just want the criminal convictions thrown out. Irons wanted the high court to right a wrong it made 46 years earlier and overturn the decisions that had allowed the government to keep the Japanese-Americans imprisoned. Because this was, as almost everyone concedes, one of the worst mistakes the government ever made. Um, and, of course, uh, when mistakes are made, the most important thing is to avoid making them again, to have people remember to educate future generations. This was a terrible thing that happened. The Supreme Court decision in the Korematsu case has remained on the books since 1944, but the court recently condemned it without actually overturning it. In June of 2018, the court upheld President Donald Trump's ban on travelers from five majority Muslim countries. Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote a blistering dissent. She said the court's travel ban decision used the same thinking as the Korematsu case. Chief Justice John Roberts disagreed. He said the two cases are different. In the majority opinion, Roberts called the decision in Korematsu gravely wrong. He said it has no place in law under the Constitution— but, he said, the travel ban isn't discriminatory because its goal is national security. Justice Sotomayor said you can't separate the two cases. She argued that the travel ban is discriminatory. She wrote, the court redeploys the same dangerous logic underlying Korematsu and merely replaces one gravely wrong decision with another. As we conclude this series, here's one last story about Order 9066 and the U.S. Constitution. It's from Mitz Koshiyama. He was one of the men at Heart Mountain who resisted the military draft. Before the war, Mitz lived with his family on a strawberry farm in California. He got into trouble in the seventh grade. I would be called by the other kids, Jap. I, I resented it, so... Uh kind of fought with them, you know. First thing I knew, I was called into the principal's office and I was sent to detention class. Mitz spent a lot of time in detention for fighting. The teacher in detention made him study a subject he said kids hated, the Constitution. He didn't see the relevance, but the teacher kept at him. Presidents come and go, teachers come and go, you know, governments come and go, but the Constitution, with always there, she said, you better learn all about the Constitution because sooner or later it's going to help you. And it did, eventually. 
and not because it kept him out of jail. When Mitz was drafted at the age of 18, he refused to serve. Mitz believed his rights as an American citizen were being violated. After all, we were put into a concentration camp, denied our, our constitutional rights, then asked to fight for the very things that were denied us, and that we have uh, every right to protest. At the time, many Japanese Americans in the camps wanted to prove their loyalty, their Americanness, by serving in the military or supporting those who did. The men who refused to serve were stigmatized by others in the community. Mitz was one of them, but that didn't matter. My soul is clean because I really believed in the Constitution and uh, kind of pulled me through all these uh, difficulties that I had during the war years. I'm not a prophet or anything, but uh, I know by, uh, let's say, common sense that sooner or later, after the war, that people are going to realize that standing up for constitutional rights was the most important thing. And it's proven to be true. Mitz Koshiyama served two years in a federal prison. After the war, he returned to California and started a cut flower business with his brother. He died in 2009. listening to Order 9066, a documentary from APM Reports. This series was produced by Stephen Smith and me, Kate Ellis. Our narrator is Pat Suzuki. The editor is Chris Julin. The theme music is by Genji Saraisi. The production team includes Alex Baumhart, Hannah Murayama, Emerald O'Brien, Andy Cruz, Corey Shreppel, Veronica Rodriguez, Michael Osborne, and Johnny Vince Evans. This series is a collaboration with the National Museum of American History. The team there includes Jennifer Jones, Mariko Sanafuji, and Valeska Hilbig. Special thanks to Densho, the Japanese American Legacy Project. Support for Order 9066 comes from the Terasaki Family Foundation, the Henry Luce Foundation, the Wallace Alexander Gerbodi Foundation, the Ishiyama Family Foundation, and Penelope Shala, you can hear the entire documentary series at our website, apmreports.org. While you're there, you can see photos from the incarceration and find links to additional resources. That includes the Smithsonian's online exhibition, Writing a Wrong. Thanks for listening. This is APM, American Public Media.